you are listening to Frankentastic, a regendered reading of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Part 5 Chapter 7 On my return, I found the following letter from my mother. My dear Victoria, you have probably waited impatiently for a letter to fix the date of your return to us, and I was at first tempted to write only a few lines, merely mentioning the day on which I should expect you. But that would be a cruel kindness, and I dare not do it. What would be your surprise, my daughter, when you expect a happy and glad welcome to behold, on the contrary, tears and wretchedness? And how, Victoria, can I relate our misfortune? Absence cannot have rendered you callous to our joys and griefs. And how shall I inflict pain on my long-absent daughter? I wish to prepare you for the woeful news, but I know it is impossible, even now, your eye skims over the page to seek the words which are to convey to you the horrible tidings. Willa is dead. That sweet child whose smiles delighted and warmed my heart, who was so gentle, yet so gay. Victoria, she is murdered. I will not attempt to console you, but will simply relate the circumstances of the transaction. Last Thursday, May 7th, I, my nephew, and your two sisters went to walk in plain play. The evening was warm and serene, and we prolonged our walk farther than usual. It was already dusk before we thought of returning, and then we discovered that Willa and Ernestine, who had gone on before, were not to be found. We accordingly rested on a seat until they should return. Presently Ernestine came and inquired if we had seen her sister. She said that she had been playing with her, that Willa had run away to hide herself, and that she vainly sought for her and afterwards wait for her, waited for her a long time. But she did not return. This account rather alarmed us, and we continued to search for her until night fell, when Lorenzo conjectured that she might have returned to the house. She was not there. We returned again with torches, for I could not rest, when I thought that my sweet girl had lost herself and was exposed to all the damps and dews of night. Lorenzo also suffered extreme anguish. About five in the morning, I discovered my lovely girl, whom the night before I had seen blooming and active in health, stretched on the grass, livid and motionless. The print of the murderer's finger was on her neck. She was conveyed home, and the anguish that was visible in my countenance betrayed the secret to Lorenzo. He was very earnest to see the corpse. At first I attempted to, present, to prevent him, but... He persisted, and entering the room where it lay, hastily examined the neck of the victim, and clasping his hands, exclaimed, "Oh God, I have murdered my darling child!" He fainted, and was restored with extreme difficulty. When he again lived, it was only to weep and sigh. He told me that that same evening Willa had teased him to let her wear a very valuable miniature that he possessed of your parent, Caro. This picture is gone, and was doubtless the temptation which urged the murderer to the deed. We have no trace of her at present, although our exertions to discover her are unremitted. 
but they will not restore my beloved Willa. Come, dearest Victoria, you alone can console Lorenzo. He weeps continually, and accuses himself unjustly as the cause of her death. His words pierce my heart. We are all unhappy. But will not that be an additional motive for you, my daughter, to return, and be our comforter? Your dear parent, alas, Victoria, I now say, thank God they did not live to witness the cruel, miserable death of their youngest darling. Come, Victoria, not brooding thoughts of vengeance against the assassin, but with feelings of peace and gentleness that will heal instead of festering the wounds of our minds. Enter the house of mourning, my friend, but with kindness and affection for those who love you, and not with hatred for your enemies. Your affectionate and afflicted mother, Alfreda Frankenstein, Geneva, May 12th. Seventeen hundred and something. Clerval, who had watched my countenance as I read this letter, was surprised to observe the despair that su succeeded to the joy I at first expressed on receiving news from my friends. I threw the letter on the table and covered my face with my hands. My dear Frankenstein, exclaimed Henrietta, when she perceived me weep with bitterness. Are we always to be unhappy, my dear friend? What has happened? I motioned to her to take up the letter while I walked up and down the room in the extremest agitation. Tears also gushed from the eyes of Clerval as she read the account of my misfortune. I can offer you no consolation, my friend, said she. Your disaster is irreparable. What do you intend to do? To go instantly to Geneva, come with me, Henrietta, to order the horses. During our walk, Clerval endeavoured to say a few words of consolation. She could only express her heartfelt sympathy. Poor Willa, said she, dear, lovely child. She now sleeps with her angel parent, who that had seen her bright and joyous in her young beauty, but must weep over her untimely loss. To die so miserably, to feel the murderer's grasp. How much more a murderer that could destroy such radiant innocence. Poor little miss. One only consolation have we. Her friends mourn and weep, but she is at rest. The pang is over. Her sufferings are at an end forever. A sod covers her gentle form, and she knows no pain. She can no longer be a subject for pity. We must reserve that for her miserable survivors. Clerval spoke thus as we hurried through the streets. The words impressed themselves on my mind, and I remembered them afterwards in solitude. But now, as soon as the horses arrived, I hurried into a cabriolet and bade farewell to my friend. My journey was very melancholy. At first I wished to hurry on, for I longed to console and sympathise with my loved and sorrowing friends, but when I drew near my native town, I slackened my progress. I could hardly sustain the multitude of feelings that crowded into my mind. I passed through scenes familiar to my youth, but which I had not seen for nearly six years. How altered everything might be during that time! 
one sudden and desolating change had taken place. But a thousand little circumstances might have by degrees worked other alterations, which, although they were done more tranquilly, might not be the less decisive. Fear overcame me. I dared not advance, dreading a thousand nameless evils that made me tremble, though I was unable to define them. I remained two days at Lausanne, in this painful state of mind. I contemplated the lake. The waters were placid, all around was calm, and the snowy mountains, the palaces of nature, were not changed. By degrees the calm and heavenly scene restored me, and I continued my journey towards Geneva. The road ran by the side of the lake, which became narrower as I approached my native town. I discovered more distinctly the black sides of Jura and the bright summit of Mont Blanc. I wept like a child. Dear mountains, my own beautiful lake, how do you welcome your wanderer? Your summits are clear, the sky and lake are blue and placid. Is this to prognosticate peace, or to mock at my unhappiness? I fear, my friend, that I shall render myself tedious by dwelling on these preliminary circumstances, but they were days of comparative happiness, and I think of them with pleasure. My country, my beloved country, who but a native can tell the delight I took in again beholding thy streams, thy mountains, and more than all, thy lovely lake. Yet as I drew nearer home, grief and fear again overcame me. Night also closed around, and when I could hardly see the dark mountains, I felt still more gloomily. The picture appeared a vast and dim scene of evil, and I foresaw obscurely that I was destined to become the most wretched of human beings. Alas! I prophesied truly, and failed only in one single circumstance, that in all the misery I imagined and dreaded, I did not conceive the hundredth part of the anguish I was destined to endure. It was completely dark when I arrived in the environs of Geneva. The gates of the town were already shut, and I was obliged to pass the night at Secheron, a village at the distance of half a league from the city. The sky was serene, and as I was unable to rest, I resolved to visit the spot where my poor Willa had been murdered. As I could not pass through the town, I was obliged to cross the lake in a boat to arrive at Plainpalais. During this short voyage I saw the lightnings playing on the summit of Mont Blanc in the most beautiful figures. The storm appeared to approach rapidly, and on landing I ascended a low hill that I might observe its progress. It advanced, the heavens were clouded, and I soon felt the rain coming slowly in large drops, but its violence quickly increased. I quitted my seat and walked on, although the darkness and the storm increased every minute, and the thunder burst with a terrific crash over my head. It was echoed from Selève, the Juras, and the Alps of Savoy. Vivid flashes of lightning dazzled my eyes, illuminating the lake, making it appear like a vast sheet of fire. Then for an instant everything seemed of a pitchy darkness, until the sky recovered itself from the preceding flash. The storm, as is often the case in Switzerland, appeared at once in various parts of the heavens. The most violent storm hung exactly north of the town, over that part of the lake which lies between the promontory of Bellerive and the village of Coppet. Another storm enlightened Jura with faint flashes, 
and another darkened and sometimes disclosed the mole, a peaked mountain to the east of the lake. While I watched the tempest, so beautiful yet terrific, I wandered on with a hasty step. This noble war in the sky elevated my spirits. I clasped my hands and exclaimed aloud, Willa, dear angel, this is thy funeral, this is thy dirge. As I said these words, I perceived in the gloom a figure which stole from behind a clump of trees near me. I stood fixed, gazing intently. I could not be mistaken. A flash of lightning illuminated the object and discovered its shape plainly to me its gigantic stature, and the deformity of its aspect, more hideous than belongs to humanity, instantly informed me that it was the wretch, the filthy demon to whom I had given life. What did she there? Could she be, I shuddered at the conception, the murderer of my sister? No sooner did that idea cross my imagination than I became convinced of its truth. My teeth chattered and I was forced to lean against a tree for support. The figure passed me quickly, and I lost it in the gloom. Nothing in human shape could have destroyed that fair child. She was the murderer. I could not doubt it. The mere presence of the idea was an irresistible proof of the fact. I thought of pursuing the devil, but it would have been in vain, for another flash discovered her to me, hanging among the rocks of the nearly perpendicular aspect of Mount Salev, a hill that bound Plain Palais on the south. She soon reached the summit and disappeared. I remained motionless. The thunder ceased, but the rain still continued, and the scene was enveloped in an impenetrable darkness. I resolved in my mind the events which I had until now sought to forget, the whole train of my progress towards the creation, the appearance of the work of my own hands alive at my bedside, its departure. Two years now had nearly elapsed since the night on which she first received life. And was this her first crime? Alas! I had turned loose into the world a depraved wretch, whose delight was in carnage and misery. Had she not murdered my sister? No one can conceive the anguish I suffered during the remainder of the night, which I spent cold and wet in the open air. But I did, but I did not feel the inconvenience of the weather. My imagination was busy in scenes of evil and despair. I considered the being whom I had cast upon womankind, and endowed with the will and power to effect purposes of horror, such as the deed which she had now done, nearly in the light of my own vampire, my own spirit let loose from the grave, forced and forced to destroy all that was dear to me. Day dawned and I directed my steps towards the town. The gates were open, and I hastened to my mother's house. My first thought was to discover what I knew of the murderer, and cause instant pursuit to be made. But I paused when I reflected on the story that I had to tell. A being whom I had myself formed and endued with life had met me at midnight among the precipices of an inaccessible mountain. I remembered also the nervous fever with which I had been seized, just at the time that I dated my creation, and which would give an air of delirium to a tale otherwise so utterly improbable. I well knew that if any other had communicated such a relation to me, I should have looked upon it as the ravings of insanity. Besides, the strange nature of the animal would elude all pursuit, even if I was so far credited 
as to persuade my relatives to commence it. And then of what use would be pursuit? Who could arrest a creature capable of scaling the overhanging sides of Mont Salève? These reflections determined me, and I resolved to remain silent. It was about five in the morning when I entered my mother's house. I told the servants not to disturb the family, and went into the library to attend their usual hour of rising. Six years had elapsed, passed as a dream, but for one indelible trace, and I stood in the same place where I had last embraced my mother, before my departure for Ingolstadt. Beloved and venerable parent, she still remained to me. I gazed on the picture of my other parent, which stood over the mantelpiece. It was a historical subject, painted at my mother's desire, and represented Caro Beaufort, in an agony of despair, kneeling by the coffin of her dead mother. Her garb was rustic, and her cheek pale, but there was an air of dignity and beauty that hardly permitted the sentiment of pity. Below this picture was a miniature of Willa, and my tears flowed when I looked upon it. While I was thus engaged, Ernestine entered. She had heard me arrive, and hastened to welcome me. She expressed a sorrowful delight to see me. "'Welcome, my dearest Victoria,' said she. "'Ah, I wish you'd come three months ago, and then you'd have found us all joyous and delighted. You come to us now to share a misery which nothing can alleviate. Yet your presence will, I hope, revive our mother.' who seems sinking under her misfortune. And your persuasions will induce poor Lorenzo to cease his vain and tormenting self-accusations. Poor Willa, she was our darling and our pride. Tears unrestrained fell from my sister's eyes. A sense of mortal agony crept over my frame. Before I had only imagined the wretchedness of my desolated home, the reality came on me as a new and not less terrible disaster. I tried to calm Ernestine. I inquired more minutely concerning my mother, and her I named my cousin. He, most of all, said Ernestine, requires consolation. He accused himself of having caused the death of my sister, and that made him very wretched. But since the murder has been discovered— The murderer discovered— "'Good God, how can that be? "'Who could attempt to pursue her? "'It's impossible. "'One might as well try to overtake the winds "'or confine a mountain stream with a straw. "'I saw her too. "'She was free last night.' "'I do not know what you mean,' replied my sister, "'in, an ac in accents of wonder. "'But to us the discovery we have made completes our misery.' No one would believe it at first. Even now Lorenzo will not be convinced, notwithstanding all the evidence. Indeed, who would credit that Justin Moritz, who was so amiable and fond of all the family, could suddenly become capable of so frightful, so appalling a crime? Justin Moritz? Poor, poor boy, is he the accused? But it is wrongfully. Everyone knows that. No one believes it, surely, Ernestine. No one did at first, but several circumstances came out that have almost forced conviction upon us, and his own behaviour has been so confused as to add to the evidence of facts, a weight that I fear leaves no hope for doubt. But he will be tried to-day, and you will then hear all. She related 
that the morning on which the murder of poor Willa had been discovered, Justin had been taken ill, and confined to his bed for several days. During this interval, one of the servants, happening to examine the apparel he had worn on the night of the murder, had discovered in his pocket the picture of my parent, which had been judged to be the temptation of the murderer. The servant instantly showed it to one of the others, who, without saying a word to any of the family, went to a magistrate, and upon their deposition Justin was apprehended. On being charged with the fact, the poor boy confirmed the suspicion in a great measure by his extreme confusion of manner. This was a strange tale, but it did not shake my faith, and I replied earnestly, "'You are all mistaken. I know the murderer. Justin! Poor good Justin is innocent!' In that instant my mother entered. I saw unhappiness deeply impressed on her countenance, but she endeavoured to welcome me cheerfully, and after we had exchanged our mournful greeting would have introduced some other topic than that of our disaster, had not Ernestine exclaimed, "'Good God, Mamma! Victoria says that she knows who was the murderer of poor Willa!' "'We do also, unfortunately,' replied my mother. For indeed I had rather have been forever ignorant than to have discovered so much depravity and ingratitude in one I valued so highly. My dear mother, you are mistaken. Justin is innocent. If he is, God forbid that he should suffer as guilty. He is to be tried to-day, and I hope, I sincerely hope, that he will be acquitted. This speech calmed me. I was firmly convinced in my own mind that Justin, and indeed every human being, was guiltless of this murder. I had no fear, therefore, that any circumstantial evidence could be brought forward strong enough to convict him. My tale was not one to announce publicly. Its astounding horror would be looked upon as madness by the vulgar. Did any one indeed exist except I, the Creator, who would believe, unless his senses convinced him, in the existence of the living monument of presumption and rash ignorance? which I had let loose upon the world. We were soon joined by Lorenzo. Time had altered him since I last beheld him. It had endowed him with loveliness surpassing the beauty of his childish years. There was the same candour, the same vivacity, but it was allied to an expression more full of sensibility and intellect. He welcomed me with the greatest affection. "'Your arrival, my dear cousin,' said he, "'fills me with hope.' You perhaps will find some means to justify my poor guiltless Justin. Alas, who is safe if he be convicted of crime? I rely on his innocence as surely as I do upon my own. Our misfortune is doubly hard to us. We've not only lost that lovely, darling girl, but this poor boy whom I sincerely love is to be torn away by an even worse fate. If he is condemned, I never shall know joy more. But he will not. I am sure he will not, and then I shall be happy again, even after the sad death of my little Willa. He is innocent, my Lorenzo, said I, and that shall be proved, fear nothing, but let your spirits be cheered by the assurance of his acquittal. How kind and generous you are! Everyone else believes in his guilt, and that has made me wretched, for I knew that it was impossible, and to see everyone else prejudiced in so deadly a manner rendered me hopeless and despairing. He wept. 
"'Dearest nephew,' said my mother, "'dry your tears. "'If he is, as you believe, innocent, "'rely on the justice of our laws, "'and the activity with which I shall prevent "'the slightest shadow of partiality.'" Chapter 8 We passed a few sad hours, until eleven o'clock when the trial was to commence. My mother and the rest of the family being obliged to attend as witnesses, I accompanied them to the court. During the whole of this wretched mockery of justice, I suffered living torture. It was to be decided whether the result of my curiosity and lawless devices would cause the death of my fellow beings, one a smiling babe full of innocence and joy, the other far more dreadfully murdered, with every aggravation of infamy that could make the murder memorable in horror. Justin also was a boy of merit, and possessed qualities which promised to render his life happy. Now all was to be obliterated in an ignominious grave, and I the cause. A thousand times rather would I have confessed myself guilty of the crime ascribed to Justin, but I was absent when it was committed, and such a declaration would have been considered as the ravings of a madwoman, and would not have exculpated him who suffered through me. The appearance of Justin was calm. He was dressed in mourning, and his countenance, always engaging, was rendered by the solemnity of his feelings exquisitely beautiful. Yet he appeared confidence in innocence, and did not tremble, though gazed on and execrated by thousands, for all the kindness which his beauty might otherwise have excited was obliterated in the minds of the spectators by the imagination of the enormity he was supposed to have committed. He was tranquil, yet his tranquillity was evidently constrained, and as his confusion had before been induced as proof of his guilt— he worked up his mind to an appearance of courage. When he entered the court, he threw his eyes round it and quickly discovered where we were seated. A tear seemed to dim his eye when he saw us, but he quickly recovered himself, and a look of sorrowful affection seemed to attest his utter guiltlessness. The trial began, and after the advocate against him had stated the charge, several witnesses were called. Several strange facts combined against him, which might have staggered any one who had not such proof of his innocence as I had. He had been out the whole of the night on which the murder had been committed, and towards morning had been perceived by a market person not far from the spot where the body of the murdered child had been afterwards found. The person asked him what he did there, but he looked very strangely and only returned a confused and unintelligible answer. He returned to the house about eight o'clock. And when one inquired where he'd passed the night, he replied that he'd been looking for the child, and demanded earnestly if anything had been heard concerning her. When shown the body, he fell into violent hysterics, and kept his bed for several days. The picture was then produced, which the servant had found in his pocket, and when Lorenzo, in a faltering voice, proved that it was the same which, an hour before the child had been missed, he had placed around her neck, a murmur of horror and indignation filled the court. Justin was called on for his defence. As the trial proceeded, his countenance had altered. Surprise, horror and misery were strongly expressed. Sometimes he struggled with his tears, but when he was desired to plead, he collected his powers and spoke in an audible though variable voice. "'God knows,' he said, "'I 
how entirely I am innocent. But I do not pretend that my protestations should acquit me. I rest my innocence on a plain and simple explanation of the facts which have been adduced against me, and I hope the character I have always borne will incline my judges to a favourable interpretation, where any circumstance appears doubtful or suspicious. He then related that by the permission of Lorenzo, he had passed the evening of the night on which the murder had been committed, at the house of an uncle at Chain, a village situated about a league from Geneva. On his return at about nine o'clock he met a woman, who asked him if he had seen anything of the child who was lost. He was alarmed by this account, and passed several hours in looking for her, when the gates of Geneva were shut, and he was forced to remain several hours of the night in a barn belonging to a cottage, being unwilling to call up the inhabitants, to whom he was well known. Most of the night he spent here watching. Towards morning he believed that he slept for a few minutes. Some steps disturbed him, and he awoke. It was dawn, and he quitted his asylum, that he might again endeavour to find my sister. If he had gone near the spot where her body lay, it was without his knowledge. That he had been bewildered when questioned by the market-person was not surprising, since he had passed a sleepless night, and the fate of poor Willow was yet uncertain. Concerning the picture he could give no account. "'I know,' continued the unhappy victim, "'how heavily and fatally this one circumstance weighs against me. "'But I have no power of explaining it, "'and when I have expressed my utter ignorance, "'I am only left to conjecture "'concerning the probabilities "'by which it might have been placed in my pocket. "'But here also I am checked. "'I believe that I have no enemy on earth, "'and none surely would have been so wicked "'as to destroy me wantonly. "'Did the murderer place it there?' I know of no opportunity afforded for for them so doing, or if I had, why should they have stolen the jewel to part with it again so soon? I commit my cause to the justice of my judges, yet I see no room for hope. I beg permission to have a few witnesses examined concerning my character, and if their testimony shall not overweigh my supposed guilt, I must be condemned." although I would pledge my salvation on my innocence. Several witnesses were called who had known him for many years, and they spoke well of him, but fear and hatred of the crime which they supposed him guilty rendered them timorous and unwilling to come forward. Lorenzo saw even this last resource, his excellent dispositions and irreproachable conduct, about to fail the accused, when, although violently agitated, he desired permission to address the court. "'I am,' said he, "'the cousin of the unhappy child who was murdered, "'or rather her brother, "'for I was educated by and have lived with her parents "'ever since and even long before her birth. "'It may therefore be judged indecent in me "'to come forward on this occasion, "'but when I see a fellow creature "'about to perish through the cowardice "'of his pretended friends, "'I wish to be allowed to speak, "'that I may say what I know of his character.' I am well acquainted with the accused. I have lived in the same house with him, at one time for five, and at another for nearly two years. During all that period he appeared to me the most amiable and benevolent of human creatures. He nursed Miss Frankenstein, my adoptive parent, in their illness, their last illness, with the greatest affection and care, and afterwards attended his own father during a tedious illness, 
in a manner that excited the admiration of all who knew him. After which he again lived in my aunt's house, where he was beloved by all the family. He was warmly attached to the child who is now dead, and acted towards her like a most affectionate father. For my own part, I do not hesitate to say that notwithstanding all the evidence produced against him, I believe and rely on his perfect innocence. He had no temptation for such an action as to the bauble on which the chief proof rests. If he had earnestly desired it, I should willingly have given it to him. So much do I esteem and value him. A murmur of approbation followed Lorenzo's simple and powerful appeal, but it was excited by his generous inference, and not in favour of poor Justin, on whom the public indignation was turned with renewed violence, charging him with the blackest ingratitude. He himself wept as Lorenzo spoke, but he did not answer. My own agitation and anguish was extreme during the whole trial. I believed in his innocence, I knew it, could the demon who had, I did not for a minute doubt, murdered my sister, also in her hellish sport have betrayed the innocent, to death and ignominy? I could not sustain the horror of my situation, and when I perceived that the popular voice and the countenances of the judges had already condemned my unhappy victim, I rushed out of the court in agony. The tortures of the accused did not equal mine. He was sustained by innocence but the fangs of remorse tore my bosom and would not forego their hold. I passed a night of unmingled wretchedness. In the morning I went to the court. My lips and throat were parched. I dare not ask the fatal question, but I was known, and the officer guessed the cause of my visit. The ballots had been thrown. They were all black, and Justin was condemned. I cannot pretend to describe what I then felt. I had before experienced sensations of horror, and I have endeavoured to bestow upon them adequate expressions, but words cannot convey an idea of the heart-sickening despair that I then endured. The person to whom I addressed myself added that Justin had already confessed his guilt. That evidence, she observed, was hardly required in so glaring a case, but I am glad of it, and indeed none of our judges like to condemn a criminal upon circumstantial evidence, be it ever so decisive. This was a strange and unexpected intelligence. What could it mean? Had my eyes deceived me? Was I really as mad as the whole world would believe me to be, if I disclosed the object of my suspicions? I hastened to return home, and Lorenzo eagerly demanded the result. My cousin, replied I, it is decided, as you may have expected, all judges had rather that ten innocent should suffer than that one guilty should escape. But he has confessed. This was a dire blow to poor Lorenzo, who had relied with firmness upon Justin's innocence. Alas, said he, how shall I ever again believe in human goodness? Justin, whom I loved and esteemed as my brother, how could he put on those smiles of innocence only to betray? His mild eyes seemed incapable of any severity or guile, and yet he has committed a murder? Soon after we heard that the poor victim had expressed a desire to see my cousin. My mother wished him not to go, but said that she left it to his own judgment and feelings to decide. Yes, said Lorenzo, I will go, although he is guilty, and 
You, Victoria, shall accompany me. I cannot go alone. The idea of this visit was torture to me, yet I could not refuse. We entered the gloomy prison chamber, and beheld Justin sitting on some straw at the farther end. His hands were manacled, and his head rested on his knees. He rose on seeing us enter, and when we were left alone with him, he threw himself at the feet of Lorenzo, weeping bitterly. My cousin wept also. "'Oh, Justin,' said he, "'why did you rob me of my last consolation? I relied on your innocence, and although I was then very wretched, I was not so miserable as I am now.' "'And do you also believe that I am so very, very wicked?' Do you also join with my enemies to crush me, to condemn me as a murderer? His voice was suffocated with sobs. Rise, my poor boy, said Lorenzo. Why do you kneel, if you are innocent? I am not one of your enemies. I believed you guiltless, notwithstanding every evidence, until I heard you had yourself declared your guilt. That report you say is false? And be assured, dear Justin, that nothing can shake my confidence in you for a moment but your own confession. I, I did confess, but I confessed a lie. I confessed that I might obtain absolution, but now that falsehood lies heavier at my heart than all my other sins. The God of heaven forgive me. Ever since I was condemned, my confessor has besieged me. She threatened and menaced until I almost began to think that I was the monster that she said I was. She threatened excommunication and hellfire in my last moments if I continued obdurate. Dear sir, I had none to support me. All looked on me as a wretch doomed to ignominy and perdition. What could I do? In an evil hour I subscribed to a lie. And now only am I truly miserable. He paused, weeping, and then continued. I thought with horror, my sweet sir, that you should believe your Justin, whom blessed Caro had so highly honoured, and whom you loved, was a creature capable of a crime which none but the devil himself could have perpetrated. Dear Willa, dearest blessed child, I shall soon see you again in heaven, where we shall all be happy, and that consoles me, going as I am to suffer ignominy and death. Oh, Justin, forgive me for having for one moment distrusted you. Why did you confess? Do not mourn, dear boy, do not fear. I will proclaim, I will prove your innocence. I will melt the stony hearts of your enemies by my tears and prayers. You shall not die. You, my playfellow, my companion, my brother. Perish on the scaffold? No. No, I never could survive. So horrible a misfortune. Justin shook his head mournfully. I do not fear to die, he said. That pang is past. God raises my weakness and gives me courage to endure the worst. I leave a sad and bitter world, and if you remember me, and think of me as of one unjustly condemned, I am resigned to the fate awaiting me. Learn from me, dear sir, to submit in patience to the will of heaven. During this conversation, I had retired to the corner of the prison room, where I could conceal the horrid anguish that possessed me. Despair! Who dared talk of that? The poor victim, who on the morrow was to pass the awful boundary between life and death, 
felt not as I did such deep and bitter agony. I gnashed my teeth and ground them together, uttering a groan that came from my inmost soul. Justin started. When he saw who it was, he approached me and said, "'Dear madam, you are very kind to visit me. I, I hope, you, I hope, do not believe that I am guilty.' I could not answer. "'No, Justin,' said Lorenzo. "'She is more convinced of your innocence than I was, "'for even when she heard you had confessed, "'she did not credit it.' "'I truly thank her. "'In these last moments I feel the sincerest gratitude "'towards those who think of me with kindness. "'How sweet is the affection of others to such a wretch as I am! "'It removes more than half my misfortune, "'and I feel as if I could die in peace, "'now that my innocence is acknowledged by you,' Dear sir, and your cousin. Thus the poor sufferer tried to comfort others, and himself. He indeed gained the resignation he desired, but I, the true murderer, felt the never-dying worm alive in my bosom, which allowed of no hope or consolation. Lorenzo also wept and was unhappy, but his was also the misery of innocence, which, like a cloud that passes over the fair moon, for a while hides, but cannot tarnish its brightness. Anguish and despair had penetrated into the core of my heart. I bore a hell within me which nothing could extinguish. We, stra we stayed several hours with Justin, and it was with great difficulty that Lorenzo could tear himself away. I wish, cried he, that I were to die with you. I cannot live in this world of misery." Justin assumed an air of cheerfulness, while he with difficulty repressed his bitter tears. He embraced Lorenzo and said in a voice of half-suppressed emotion, Farewell, sweet sir, dearest Lorenzo, my beloved and only friend, may heaven in its bounty bless and preserve you. May this be the last misfortune that you will ever suffer. Live and be happy, and make others so. And on the morrow, Justin died. Lorenzo's heart-rending eloquence failed to move the judges from their settled conviction in the criminality of the saintly sufferer. My passionate and indignant appeals were lost upon them, and when I received their cold answers and heard the harsh, unfeeling reasoning of these women, my purposed avowal died away on my lips. Thus I might proclaim myself a madwoman but not revoke the sentence passed upon my wretched victim. He perished on the scaffold as a murderer. From the tortures of my own heart I turned to contemplate the deep and voiceless grief of my Lorenzo. This also was my doing, and my mother's woe, and the desolation of that late so smiling home, all was the work of my thrice accursed hands. You weep, unhappy ones, but these are not your last tears. Again shall you raise the funeral wail, and the sound of your lamentations shall again and again be heard. Frankenstein, your daughter, your kinswoman, your early much-loved friend, she who would spend each vital drop of blood for your sakes, who has no thought nor sense of joy except as it is mirrored also in your dear countenances, who would fill the air with blessings, and spend her life in serving you. She bids you weep, 
to shed countless tears. Happy beyond her hopes, if thus inexorable fate be satisfied, and if the destruction pause before the peace of the grave have succeeded to your sad torments. Thus spoke my prophetic soul, as torn by remorse, horror, and despair, I beheld those I loved spend vain sorrow upon the graves of Willa and Justin, the first hapless victims to my unhallowed arts. End of Volume 1 Thank you for listening to Frankentastic. Oh, it was a gloomy one this week. On behalf of Twelfth Planet Press, I'd like to thank everyone who backed the Mother of Invention Kickstarter. And I will see you next time. <laughs>